Nehemiah chapter 10. We'll look this morning at verses 30 to 39. Most anywhere you look, you can see the importance of good follow-up. Baseball pitchers, basketball shooters, golfers, all know the importance of good follow-through. But the same is true for people selling anything from advertising to automobiles. It takes good follow-up to be a long-term success. And so it is with our Christian experience. We may talk about making a decision for Christ or committing our life to Christ, but in reality, the follow-up is where the rubber meets the road and demonstrates whether our decisions and our commitments are real or just talk. That follow-up is what we come to in our text this morning. In our last study, three weeks ago now, we face the reality that God's mercies demand our commitment, our commitment to obey God's word. And we saw these people making this great commitment to the Lord. But what exactly does that mean? Here that theme is worked out in some very specific details. Maybe not the details we would have chosen, maybe not details that we think are the issues of our life, but details that were important in uh, ancient Jerusalem. And even though they may be a bit foreign to us, here we learn how to apply God's word and to obey it. Not just in a big confession of it, but in the practice of it in the details of our life. Let me read it. I'll pick up with verse 29. Here's the big commitment, and then our text starts with verse 30. All these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, even through uh, even through Moses and given through Moses and the servant the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. There's the big commitment. Now the specifics. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them. On the Sabbath or on any other holy day, every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God. For the bread set on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. And as, as it is written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priest, the first of our ground meal, our grain offerings, of, uh, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it's the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of God, to the storerooms of the treasury. 
The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. Though this text is not divided evenly at all, there are really three subjects going on here. The first is the matter of marriage in the first verse. The second is the keeping of the Sabbath in the the second verse. And then the provisions for the temple worship in the rest of the text from 32 to 39. That's going to give us three points, and we'll deal with them somewhat evenly, even though uh, the text is much longer on the third than it is on the first two. Three points. First is this. Obedience means we will not marry an unbeliever. Obedience means we will not marry an unbeliever. From the beginning, God called his people to be separate from the world. So when the children of Israel were about to enter the promised land, God warned them not to intermarry with the Canaanites who lived there. Now that was probably not too difficult, for there were a huge number of God's people entering the land. It was a huge community, uh, perhaps as big as the Canaanites that lived there. And the Canaanites were very different from Israel. They were actually a, 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 a brutal, primitive people. Their worship included unspeakable, despicable acts, things God abhors. They were the enemies of God. They were the people who God had sent Israel to destroy. Obviously, God forbade his people to intermarry with his enemies. Later on, however, the marriage issue probably got easier when Israel... Uh, 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 developed as a nation in that land. They became the, prob- prom- the prominent people in the land. So there were lots of eligible young Jewish men and, and, and women to marry, and God's command simply seemed to mean you, 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 a Jew will marry a Jew. And that's basically what they did. But in the time of Nehemiah, the situation had changed radically. The Jews were now a minority in a culture which was part of a great world empire, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, Persian Empire. The Jews had little power, little status in that world. There were few choices of marriage partners, especially, especially for this remnant that had returned to the land in Jerusalem, their little Jewish community. So marriage to non-Jews seemed to make sense. It solved the problem of numbers. There were lots of eligible young people outside the little Jewish circle. And it provided an opportunity for upward social mobility. Uh, Marriages were arranged to gain more prominent in-laws. And it seemed to be a good way for this tiny minority to move into the mainstream of the Persian Empire, the world power of the day. By marriage, they could gain respectability and advantage for their family, for their children and grandchildren. And so, in the book, books of Nehemiah, and also of Ezra, and also of Malachi, which were all written about this same time, the Lord, again and again, needs to warn his people against intermarrying with those from the surrounding culture. Obedience means we will not marry an unbeliever. Well, nowadays, we face quite a different situation, don't we? Christ has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Christians are now found among every race and people, culture on earth. 
So in spite of what some may think, it is no longer true that we should only marry people from our own race, our own national heritage, or our own culture. Obedience to God's word does not demand such a thing. What it does demand is that we are not free to just marry whomever we choose. In Christ, God is calling a people for himself, a new covenant community, a people born anew of the Spirit, adopted into the family of God, and that community is radically distinct from the world, radically distinct from others of their own race, from others of their own national heritage, from even members of their own family and clan. And obedience means that those who know Jesus only will marry other believers who are disciples of Jesus. But we don't have to labor to figure out if this is God's, if this ancient word is God's intent for us. The New Testament says it quite clearly in 2 Corinthians 6. Let me read it. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Obedience means we will not marry an unbeliever. No matter how rich or successful he might be, no matter how beautiful she might be, no matter how smart, no matter how talented, we will not marry an unbeliever. Before we move on, just a word to you parents. In our culture, you may say, well, I don't make that decision. My kids make that decision. Oh, don't kid yourself. Folks, you decide this issue for your children long before they ever think of marriage the first time. For you're the one who teaches them that they belong to the Lord, not the world. You're the one who shows them what a Christian marriage looks like. You're the one who early on must set the parameters for their social life. You're the one who has to ask the hard questions and set boundaries when it comes time to date. Don't think you have no influence here. This is your responsibility. And to young people, you you disregard such guidance at your own peril. Obedience means we will not marry an unbeliever. That's the first truth. Specifics of what it means to obey the Lord. Then in verse 31, the second specific is set forth. Obedience means we observe God's rest. Obedience means we observe God's rest. I suspect we all know the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That was actually only a summary of the law concerning God's rest. In the Old Testament law, God commanded an extensive Sabbath system. Every seventh day was to be holy to the Lord. But then there, was, there were new moon celebrations every month. There were feasts and holy days throughout the years, so a whole calendar full of them. And, and, and then, if that were not enough, every seventh year... The whole year was a Sabbath to the Lord when the land was not to be plowed up and planted at all. And then after seven cycles of those seven years 
came the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, when not only did the land rest, as it did on those other every seventh year, but, but all the debts were canceled and all the slaves were set free. All this was a beautiful lifestyle to be lived out by the Israelites in the promised land, demonstrating to the world and reminding them that they belonged to the Lord. They were God's people, completely dependent upon him and resting in him and him alone. He had not only delivered them from slavery, but he provided for them every day. He provided rest from the sin that destroys the, 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 the land, and he called them into fellowship with himself into the joy of knowing and worshiping him. Now, all that Sabbath system was fine, as long as everybody played by the same rules. But the people of Nehemiah's day lived in quite a different situation. They no longer lived in a kingdom governed by God's law. They were just a minority group in the Persian Empire. There was no Sabbath day. That was a work day. There was no sabbatical year. Every year was the same. There was no forgiving of debts or setting slaves free or return to the land to, to its owners. This was Persia, folks, not Israel. So what were the people to do? God had called them to obey his word in response to his grace lavished upon them. But it seemed impo- impossible in their culture. They certainly could not recreate the whole system as if the whole nation were God's holy people. But even in their little part of it, how could they survive? How could they compete? They would surely be fools and failures to try to live so out of step with their world. But God has always called his people to be countercultural and to trust him for the consequences. And so in verse 31... They committed themselves to the Lord no matter what they cost. They would not do business on any holy day. And on the seventh year, they would forego working the land and cancel their debts. Kind of an abbreviated program of the whole Jewish system. Folks, this was a bold act of obedience. But they understood that obedience means we will observe God's rest. So how does all that apply to us today? Well, there are many who believe that it applies to us exactly the same way it applied to the people in Nehemiah's day, except that the Sabbath day has changed from Saturday to Sunday. I believe that the New Testament teaches something much more radical than that. The New Testament makes clear that Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was not just some arbitrary law about how you spend your time. The Sabbath had meaning. It pointed to our need of salvation and our need of rest that we cannot gain by our own labor. That was the point of the Sabbath, according to Exodus 20, where the Sabbath was tied to the perfect harmony with the Creator, which we used to have before sin entered the picture. That was the point of the Sabbath, according to Deuteronomy 5, where the Sabbath is tied to God's deliverance from Egypt, the prototype of our salvation. So now Christ has fulfilled those things for us, bringing eternal rest to our soul. He has reconciled us to our Creator. He has redeemed us from our slavery to sin. 
Jesus now extends his personal invitation. He sets himself up as the ultimate Sabbath and says, come to me and you'll have rest. I will give you rest. In fact, Colossians 2.16 says explicitly that Christ is the reality to which the Sabbath and the other holy days only pointed. And Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us how he brought the rest which God promised from the beginning of creation. So the New Testament makes it clear that we live in a different situation than they did. We are not under the administration of God's law as Israel was. We're just not. Christ has come and has fulfilled the law with all of its demands. He's lavished his grace upon us, which we receive by faith apart from any works. We earn nothing. We don't gain God's pleasure by keeping the Sabbath or any other requirement. We're accepted by God because of Jesus, not because we've kept the rules. So for us, keeping the Sabbath primarily means that we rest by faith in Christ Jesus every moment of our life, every day of the week, every month of the year. In a very real sense, in Christ we have already entered the eternal rest in which we will live forever. Every day is holy to the Lord. But at the same time, we still live in this present world. We have human bodies and they grow tired and we have to sleep. Our souls need times of retreat and refreshment. We live in a world ordered by cycles of time, day and night. New moons, the tides come, the tides go. Seasons of the year, changes of weather. We cannot escape these cycles of life. They order our lives outside of us and within us. So we can easily see how the creation pattern of one day of rest in seven was a great gift of God. And sure enough, even in the New Testament, where Christ's Sabbath fulfillment is made very clear, we still find God's people setting aside time for worship and fellowship each week. Meeting together, not on the Sabbath day, but on the day of resurrection, the day, the first day of the week. Even though it was a work day in their culture, they had to meet early in the morning or late at night. So we, li- so we live in the tension of these two realities. Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath. We're forgiven. We've received new life. We have entered forever into God's rest already. But in this world, we need rest. We need the God-ordained circle of days, cycle of days. We need time set apart for worship and fellowship and instruction in his word. I didn't come up with this. The Heidelberg Catechism states it quite well. And answer the question, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? It says, first, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people, to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings to the poor. We gather in a cycle. When the church gathers to learn, grow, fellowship, give, worship. Second, it goes on, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through his spirit. And so begin already in this life 
the eternal rest. Obedience means we observe God's rest in all of the fullness that now has been explained to us in his word. Finally, there's a third specific example of obedience. Obedience means we own God's work. Obedience means we own God's work. Near where we lived in New Jersey, they were converting a government housing project into resident-owned private homes. Units which had been government-owned, low-income rental properties were now being sold to the renters, the same people who already lived there, as condominiums. Now, why would they do that? Because ownership changes one's perspective. There's a difference between living in the government's house and living in my own house. And the difference is my sense of responsibility. That sense of ownership responsibility is what's being promoted in this last and lengthiest section of our text, verses 32 to 39. Here God's people are called to assume ownership responsibility for the house of the Lord, for the ministry of the priests and the Levites in the temple. That ministry is kind of summarized in verse 32. The displaying of the showbread in the holy place, the regular offerings, the offerings made on special days, the offerings for atonement, the other costs of the temple work. Now the Old Testament had much to say about how the temple was to be maintained. The responsibilities listed here are, are, are not an exhaustive list by any means, but they all seem to make a reference to some requirement of the law, though you have to skip around through the law to find where they came up with all of these. At the same time, some of these requirements are slightly modified. The temple tax is changed from a half shekel to a third, of sh- third shekel, or, or some things are made more explicit than we can find in the law. What we have here, though, is a working list of what it's going to take to keep God's work going in this temple that they built and the wall that they've completed in Jerusalem where this little remnant of God's people lives. So there's several things. There's going to be an annual tax for each person. There's going to be a duty list set up for families who will bring firewood for the altar. Certain time of the year, it's your turn to bring the firewood. Everyone will bring the first fruits. First fruits of the crops and fruit trees, the firstborn animals, the firstborn sons, which are redeemed for money, and the first of other commodities like meal and grain and wine and oil. In addition to that, there's a tithe, a tenth of all the crops, which is going to be given to the Levites. And then the Levites are to give a tithe, a tenth of what they get to the priest to support them. And responsible people are going to be selected to help collect these tithes. You see, when Israel was a big, prosperous nation, there were people who did all these things. Actually, these were government responsibilities. For back then, the government and the church were the same thing in ancient Israel, right? But when the nation of Israel had been reduced down to a small little remnant, this, this little group of people now back in the land and building the temple and building the wall, everyone has to take ownership for the house of God, or it's not going to continue. Now, the support of God's work looks quite different in our day. God's work is not centralized in some temple in Jerusalem. We don't have the requirements for bringing uh, firewood or animals to be sacrificed or any such thing. The support of God's work is much more diverse. 
But every local church has expenses. And those who minister the gospel are to make their living doing so. And the poor are to be cared for, as Jesus said so often. And a big thing, the gospel is to, be, is to go to the ends of the earth. And God's people are called to support that effort. It doesn't just happen. Someone has to take responsibility for it. Very different than what the ancient Jews faced. Nevertheless, the principles found here still apply to us. Let me mention a few principles just briefly. First, there's the principle that everyone contributes. We don't have any typical tax, but everyone gives. We're called to do whatever needs doing, like the bringing of firewood. I can't find any reference in the Old Testament about how we'll take turns bringing firewood. Just like we don't have anything in the Bible about setting up a duty list of who keeps the nursery and who takes care of the fellowship time and who takes the offering. But somebody has to do it. The third thing is that God's portion comes first. Notice how many times here we hear first fruits. First fruits of everything. First fruits. God deserves more than leftovers. Still does. And then fourth, we give proportionally. That's what a tithe is. Tithe is a percentage. So as God prospers us more, we give more. When we have hard times, we can give less. Proportional giving. In big churches, there are managerial systems all set in place to take care of all these things. So you could come to big church for years and never really feel that it was your responsibility to do anything. Small churches, especially in new church plants, people quickly understand that everyone's contribution is needed. Contributions of time and of money if God's work is going to continue. And what a privilege it is. Think about it. We have the privilege of helping to shoulder the responsibility for Christ's church, the advance of the gospel in the world. It is of the essence of our obedience to God's word to own responsibility for God's work. Throughout the scriptures, it's consistently true that God's mercies demand our commitment to obey his word. But knowing what that means often takes some work. For not all the Bible applies to us equally. What was true for Israel under the law is not necessarily the same for us. Then again, none of the Bible is useless to us. Even those details of ancient history have something to teach us. For in spite of the fact that the Bible was written over a period of probably 1,600 years by about 40 different human authors, it has one divine author, and it speaks a consistent truth to God's people who live in different situations at different times in history. So we have work to do, as the Apostle says, to rightly divide the word of truth, to figure out what it means and how it applies to us so we can obey it. And since this is often difficult work, it's often distorted by those who are peddling their own ideas and their own agendas. But God has given us his spirit. He's given us spirit-filled teachers and pastors. He's given us a spirit-filled community of believers that we might discern and learn and know and do what pleases him. So what we have this morning is only a few specifics that those people needed to hear back in Jerusalem. 
And yet, and yet they apply to us too. Three things. Obedience means we will not marry an unbeliever. That principle has been true throughout the history of God's people, and it is true for you and your family too. Secondly, obedience means we observe God's rest. What that looks like in the church today is much different than what it looked like in ancient Israel. But God has not changed. And our desperate need to find our rest in him has not changed either. Indeed, only in Christ will we fully know that rest. And then thirdly, obedience means we own God's work. Folks, there is no such thing as spectator Christianity. God has called us to give and to serve in whatever way he opens to us, with whatever resources he entrusts into our hands. As in Nehemiah's day, God's grace calls us to obedience. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. That we often struggle to understand exactly what it means and how ancient things apply to us in our different situation. Make us wise. We need your spirit to guide us. We need good teachers. We need the fellowship of your people who see things differently than we in order that we might grow and learn. So may we give ourselves to that task. Thank you for the instruction that you give us in some details and also along the way in how to work out these things and how, how, how to figure out how they apply to us. May we be diligent about that. And give us a heart, Lord, to obey you as we understand your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.